This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a respectful forum for courageous conversations about difficult subjects. Tonight is part of our ongoing series about telling difficult stories, and I'm going to be talking to Laura Sims about storytelling. Laura Sims is an award-winning storyteller, recording artist, teacher, author, and humanitarian who travels the world telling stories to bring reconciliation. She's currently a senior research fellow in human rights at Rutgers University and is writing a new book on genocide prevention, storytelling, and human rights. She is the author of the current book, Our Secret Territory, The Essence of Storytelling. Laura Sims has just returned from Haiti, where she was working as a storyteller to help in the recovery effort from the earthquake in January 2010. Welcome to Safe Space, Laura. Thank you so much. I want to talk to you both about telling stories to others and how you help people tell their own story. But I want to begin by asking you about stories themselves. Why, why are stories important? Why is telling a story so important? It's, you know, it's the absolutely great question. For me, a, a story is important because it at once in the telling gives distance. And at the same time, anyone who's listening becomes everything in the story. It's a kind of alchemical event, which is just rife with um, visualization, feeling, association. And it, it's a very special, I mean, oral storytelling, it's a very special um, event that's shared between people because there's the content of the story, there's the, that the storyteller's telling, and then there's this just effusive, um, wonderful responsiveness, this spontaneous visualization that's occurring for the listener. And at the same time, the very process brings us to some access within ourselves of some in, sort of inherent goodness. Like, I think we think of it as enchantment, but it, it's a kind of field of um, open heart that exists between the listener and the teller, even in a kind of raucously funny story, a folk tale, or a very, very complex and deep personal story or mythic tale. There's something about this that I think is a mirror of how we actually, how our minds exist actually and make meaning. It's fascinating. So if I'm understanding you, it, by the very act of someone telling a story, the listener is sort of engages willingly in, in, in opening their own heart to hear the story. Is that what you're saying? I think it, it's, it's, um, it's not a given. <laughs> it depends on the storyteller and the circumstance and the way in which the story is brought to life. Because it's it's a living experience, so it's not you know this you know you just tell a story, you recite a narrative, and this is going to happen. It's one of those things that really depends on the auspicious coming together of circumstances. But a good storyteller can really make that happen. How do they? I guess you you um, you love the story, you um, tell it as a kind of. Um, an unbiased journey as opposed to it being like, um, you know, you want somebody to get what you're saying and the meaning you're saying in the listening to 
a really great story. There's a lot of different meanings and perspectives that come up. It's not an arrow that's shooting so you have a moralistic lesson. I don't think of that as storytelling. It strikes me how often we tell stories to children with a moralistic lesson, with a hope that they'll get some principle about how to be a good child, as opposed well, to really that, telling that Hopefully that they'll get the idea that we have for them. And that's, that's a concept. You can get a concept, but it still won't give you the experience to penetrate so that you become a responsible person who's able to reflect and understand cause and effect and how your actions have effect on others. So I think why storytelling was so powerful and has lasted so long, this particular kind of storytelling, is because it, it, you become all the characters. And I think it's only recent that you have these kind of tagged on endings that say, and therefore you should do such and such, which then takes it from this penetrating um, experience to just an idea, and the story then in some ways loses its validation. It becomes almost a punishment or a lesson rather than this extraordinary, delightful and moving experience that changes us and does open our hearts quite spontaneously. So I want to just come back to to the list you were generating to see if there's anything more, because you said in order for the storyteller to evoke that open-heartedness in the listener, they need to love the story and they need to tell it as an unbiased journey. Are there any other things the storyteller needs to do? Well, I think for myself, um, I really need to understand or discern between my opinion of the story and how I see it and what's actually happening in the unfolding narrative. And I think that sort of deeper aspect of that is the storyteller beginning to understand that there is a kind of um, almost archetypal emotional journey that the listener goes on in each story. I'm not talking about the, you know, symbolic meanings and so forth, but really understanding how the engagement itself functions. And that's, that one has to be trained in. But on the other hand, I don't want somebody to not tell a story because of the way that I'm talking about it because there's something so natural about really engaging in the story. I know sitting with my girlfriends, having conversation and going along, and then all of a sudden, and you feel it. We know it viscerally. We've entered the realm of story. And I'm talking about the kind of gossip that's really great, not malevolent gossip, (laughs) but the sort where you just want to share an experience with somebody else, and all of a sudden, it's as if you could be talking for hours, it's as if five minutes has effortlessly passed, and we're engaged. We all know that experience. It's wide awake. It's not like listening to a lecture or, you know, making conversation where you just wonder, like, well, where am I going to connect here? There's something about this that's um, really precious and that can't be replicated in any other way. I feel it often as a parent reading bedtime stories. Even then, I'm not telling it, I'm reading it, but the, the rapture of my child sinking into the story, living it, absolutely living it. It does yeah. feel like we enter this whole other territory and any interruption to the story is absolutely not to be tolerated. Well, it's <laughs> like a waking dream. Or 
a guided visualization. And what's so beautiful about it is that there's no two people who will ever imagine it, even in a reading of a story where every night the words are the same. No one will ever imagine it the same twice. Because they bring themselves to their, to their imagination, is that what you mean? Well, I think because in the present moment, things arise constantly. And we do bring our associations and some inner place that I think traditional peoples have really honored and felt was so important, and that we very often forget about or discount because it's not um, categorizable or conceptual. But there is this like liminal space of listening that is really intelligence and intuition all at once. You've said before that for a listener to allow themselves to follow you as a storyteller, to allow themselves to engage in the story, that the listener needs to trust that the storyteller may take them somewhere very dark or very frightening, and they need to trust that the storyteller will get them out. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how the storyteller can engender that trust and how they can know that they will get them out. Recognizing their relationship to the listener and trusting that. And as the Turkish proverb says, the voice is half the wisdom. Our voice being in our bodies and really devoting ourselves to that instrument so that it's not about having a beautiful voice, it's about having an embodied voice and being present. You know, you know from the sound of the voice of the storyteller whether you're going to trust them or not. And the storyteller is there for you. So if the storyteller is lost in the story or it's more about their performance than it is about you, you may go, but you might not go that deeply. There's also a lot to say about the structure of story, that you know, at the end of the story, if the storyteller knows modulates the energy of the situation and really can bring you back. They don't have to reconcile the story. They don't have to make you feel better. But it's a kind of experience of coming back. The closures to stories actually bring you back to be on solid ground where you can bring the treasures of the imagination, but you wake up from that sort of risk reciprocal kind of enchantment that you're experiencing, the storyteller could bring you back. If the storyteller's lost in the story, or really involved in their own emotion completely, then very often you can't be liberated mm. <laughs> in the listening. You become a witness to their telling the story. You have right. to live through the story yourself first. In your book, Our Secret Territory, you talk about kind of different thresholds that the listener goes on on the journey. You mentioned earlier the journey that the listener goes on, and you describe them as this threshold of longing, the kind of longing for the story that you kind of, as you enter, and then further thresholds that you cross over, like of no return and ultimately of an encounter with death. And I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about those thresholds and whether every story has to have them, how they work. I think there I was really talking about the process of engagement that a story engenders between a listener and a teller. In the storytelling, usually in, in a, a tale, there's some kind of ordinary details. There was once a woman who had a daughter who was very beautiful, and there's a 
not very exciting, but we're just sort of listening. Why is this person telling us that? And then all of a sudden, something out of the ordinary happens. And we want to know what's going to happen next. Yes. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we're plunged in that experience you talked about with your son, like drenched in the story where it really matters. And part of that's because the stage is not outside of us. The stage is inside of us. So we are the characters. And therefore, our life depends on finding out what happens next. So I want to ask you now, Laura, stories can render an experience which is unbearable. Somehow they can hold it in a way that renders it bearable. And I wonder if you could say more about that. I think partially what you're talking about is the difference between memory and story. What is that difference? When we remember something very viscerally, it's almost as if it's happening in the moment and it overwhelms us. We relive it with a kind of power that sometimes is even more terrifying than what actually, when it happened. Because when something happens, we have to survive. And when you make something into a story and you tell it, you have a beginning, a middle, and an end. You have a before that. You have the event itself. And then you have you who is in the present, who has survived it, telling the story, who's still alive. And it mirrors the kind of journey in many of the great stories of the world. So it gives you some distance and structure, order and control, at least imaginatively, that you could not have had during the situation. And very often, when you haven't put it into this kind of container, um, you don't have enough distance that you can actually tell the story without falling into a depth of chaos or terror or overwhelming fear that the memory of it might bring up without it being a story. And somebody hears you. Someone is on the outside who hears you. So they're like a lifeline. And very often it's that simple fact of not somebody solving the problem or telling you how you should feel or that it'll be okay, but someone who's just there completely listening allows you to experience it and realize that you're not going to drown in it. And slowly you begin to gain a kind of internal capacity to see that experience as not the only identifiable event of your life, but there was something before, and that with time you can turn that experience into medicine or, or wisdom or a lesson so that you don't have to live your life in revenge or anger or fear or feeling victimized. You become the victor of your story. I'm wishing so much that so many of the people I work with could hear everything you just said. I wonder, do you ever work with therapists, Laura, as a way to use this for people recovering from traumatic experience? A lot, yes. (laughs) Maybe that's actually the perfect segue to hearing about your time in Haiti. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing there and how you bring this particular knowing to your work there. I'm working with a particular NGO there as a, in quotes, narrative therapist. 
with mentors, educators, health workers, and facilitators who work with young adults in different situations, mostly in Port-au-Prince, which is the capital and where most of the damage occurred from the earthquake. And so I'm working, I think, in, in three different ways. One, I'm really encouraging people to tell stories from their own lives, particularly from their childhoods, to go back before the earthquake and actually find territory of joy or contentment, of um, accessible happiness, um, place, so that internally there is a place that is untarnished by the experience that they went through. Then the second thing I'm doing is really encouraging people to enjoy and listen to and tell traditional stories to have the immediate effect of helping people to have relief from preoccupations of misery or hopelessness, particularly people who are living in tents, who have waited all these months and nothing has changed. And so there is a kind of apathetic sadness in people who have tremendous hospitality and resilience and natural intelligence. So that brings immediate joy. I mean, the women who come into the tents to hear the stories very often kind of come in and sort of sink down, leaning against the tarp wall, looking somewhat withered and exhausted. And then some point in listening to the stories, it's as if like a plant is being watered from the roots. I see them just kind of sit up and smile and start to respond, ask me questions. And then I can ask them to tell me stories from their own lives, the stories they remember. And in that time, what's actually happening is they remember that they have joy, that they have a whole inner resource treasure house of resilience and energy that they can call on that doesn't have to swoop them back into feeling hopeless or miserable. So it's, it has to do a lot with energy. Then the telling of difficult stories is not something I do usually en masse. I might tell a difficult story to a group of people and allow them to live through something from the pre through the obstacles to um, some kind of conclusion, reconciliation, victory, um, rebalancing, renewal that happens in the story. But when I'm working in either small groups or with individuals, I might help them in different kinds of ways to tell the story of something incredibly difficult that happened to them. In some ways by, at first, not just asking them for a litany of miserable details, but finding a way for them to house that narrative in a sense of place or with image, with feeling, and giving them structures so that they themselves can have some distance in the telling of it. And I don't mean, when I say distance, I don't mean dissociation. But there's a way of telling the story where then they can come to the end of the story. And very often I'll ask them about how they might like to end it differently, or can they see something in that story that really offered them something, a learning that they didn't have, 
like one woman I was talking with her and she was talking about what happened to her the day of the earthquake and she fell into a hole. I mean, the earth just opened up and somebody lifted her out who she didn't know and she continued on her way only to find that her house had collapsed. And at some point she talked about arriving at the camp of discovering that her husband had lost both legs and the tremendously poignant, tragic story. I said to at the very end of it, is there anything about living in the camp that's really surprised you? And she said, well, I really liked my life before, and there is a lot of difficulty here, but I never knew who I was. I never knew the companionship and family of meeting with women. I didn't know I was a leader. Now I want to change my life. So I never commented. I felt her sadness when she told me about her husband. I cried with her because I felt it. But there was a part of the listening that even though I'm feeling it, I'm not trying to solve it. I'm just listening. And usually people give me the clues for like the liberating moment because she told me about a group of women that she became very close to at the camp at the end of her story. So I went for that. Do you ever have a a story where you can't find a liberating moment? Usually not, no. Usually I do find a liberating moment. They're not always recognizable. Yes. Sometimes it's just, you know, how amazing it was that somebody picked her up at that moment. Yes. I said, did you ever meet him again? And she said, yes, I once saw him again on the street. I said, what did you do? She said, I went and I thanked him. He didn't really recognize me because it was dark, but he was so happy. It's like finding that you could have even an extraordinary joy or some kind of auspicious moment or someone else telling me about praying on the street. Hmm. It doesn't have to be a moment illumined with great uh, music and light. Sometimes something quite small. And so if if I was someone in Haiti who'd lived through the, the earthquake, and I, too, had had a, a very terrifying experience and one that ended with a great deal of loss, and I came to you, and I was yearning to tell the story, but I was afraid to. I was afraid of the level of pain in my story. How would you help me get that distance that you're describing? Well, that actually happened, and I, I, don't, I can't go into too much detail with it being... Uh, meaningful in a short period of time, but instead of people telling the story of what happened in the earthquake, I had them tell me about their fear and then speak from their fear, speak to their fear, and I made fear into a character with them so that they could actually relate to their fear rather than that fear being a huge monster waiting for them every time they heard a sound or remembered it. And then Because they could do that, they could begin to tell the story. Can I tell you a story? Uh, Yes, please tell me a story. I I love this story about a a man who was very, very generous, who had a beautiful bowl, and he placed the bowl on a fresh water stream so that people could drink from it. And in Haiti, with cholera and uh, malaria and the 
rubble falling into the water and in endless heat, water is a big issue. So everybody's saying, mm-hmm, yeah. They <laughs> said, this was a really kind man because he knew that to have a beautiful bowl, then people could drink fresh water. But there was a woman who saw the bowl and nobody was around and she wanted it, so she took it. And she put it in her basket and she put a bag of salt in it so nobody would see and she started walking. But the basket started talking and said, it's not your bowl. (laughs) She was terrified and threw the basket away and walked faster and the sack of salt began to say, it's not your bowl. She threw the sack away, and she started running. She was very thirsty, bent down to drink. And the water said, it's not your bowl. And she ran. And her clothing began to say, it's not your bowl. And she stripped off her clothing, ran, ran, ran. And she bumped into someone, and their body said, it's not your bowl. And suddenly she realized what she had done. And so she ran back, ran back, jumped in that fresh stream of water, and the bowl began to float. It was there for everyone to drink. And the water began to pull her down. But then she said, I know it was not my bowl. And the water released her. And she climbed out. And she found her clothes, and she found her basket, and she found her sack of salt. And she continued walking home. And they just loved this story. Everybody loved this story. And secretly inside myself, I always think, inside of each of us is endless fresh water. And the stories, when they're told well, they're like the bowl it's there for us and we could all drink this fresh water but if somebody owns it or somebody takes it and we all you know if somebody interprets it and, and says this is what this means this is what it is hopefully they'll hear everything in the world saying no that's not the way it is <laughs> And yet I also feel such compassion for the one who wants that bowl, who wants exactly. it. And that urging to, to think that we do know what the story means. And to think that we don't already have it. Yes. Because all you have to do is bend down and use it to drink the water. and It's always there for us. And maybe this has to do a lot with what happens to us with desire or when we become attached to the idea of being a victim. And we feed that a lot in our world. But in the telling of a story, regardless of what the story content is, in the listening to it is a liberation, is a joy. I just say, even if for that moment, like a window is opened and you feel a, a cool breeze inside yourself where it's been really dense with thinking and with unhappiness, there's a kind of relief. New insight can happen, or you can relax your body in that moment and make friends with yourself. So sometimes that's the best I feel I'm doing in that circumstance. 
I often say, I'm going to do something with you for an hour or two. I know your situation is so difficult, and I'm not going to be able to change your situation, but I might help you see it differently. Or even in this hour, I might help you to feel better. And when it's over, one woman said to me in the tent, they were all leaving, and suddenly she said, wait, I, I want to tell you something. I have been so unhappy for so many months. But while listening, I remembered that inside of me, I have joy. Laura Sims, I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. Oh, and it's such a wonderful opportunity to talk about storytelling. I think it's, it's the most natural thing in the world that we do, and we think of it as fantasy, but I think of it more as moment by moment being thoroughly present. It's that quality that's really refreshing. Laura, if someone wants to know more about your work, what is your website address? Um, com, And I really um, am excited about the new book. It just came out from Sentient Books, Our Secret Territory, The Essence of Storytelling. And it's really, lots of stories are in it, but it's really talking about my experience as a storyteller trying to help people to have an experience of, of what this is like so that they can really feel more excited about telling stories in their lives and, and why it works to help people and themselves. It's an absolutely beautiful book. It conveys so well some of the enchantment that you're describing. Thank you, Laura Sims, for being my guest. Thank you, Anne. Dr. Anne. This is Dr. Anne. This is WMPG. This is Safe Space Radio. I've been talking to Laura Sims storyteller, author of Our Secret Territory, The Essence of Storytelling. Coming up next is Covering the Bases with Thaddeus.